Again, welcome everybody. What a great Sunday. Uh, a great Lord's Day. Being together in community, worshiping in spirit and in truth, being part of baptisms. These baptisms celebrated God breaking into two families for the first time ever. And then we get to celebrate doing life together. And it's not over yet. Now we get to hear from God's word. And then afterwards, we, after the service, we're going to have our bring your own lunch. And um, the way that works around here when we have a bring your own lunch social is everybody orders their food and either door dashes it here or runs and goes, gets it, and then comes back and we have a meal together. So if you're new, that's how that works. And we hope that you'll stay around for it. The New Testament calls these love feasts when Christians gather together and share a meal together. I just, I just revel in how joyful it is to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to remember the Sabbath, to be set aside for special purposes. So I'm glad that you're here. So today we're concluding our short series of sermons on the book of Hebrews. Um, and because lots has gone on, let me jump into the text right away. Our text this morning is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So last week, Pastor Danny talked about the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, that list of people who lived amazing lives of faith. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to remember those who have gone before us who lived amazing lives of faith. And they're the great cloud of witnesses that he's referring to in Hebrews 12.1. And as Danny said last week, Hebrews 11 isn't a bunch of perfect people. Hebrews 11 is this list of really, really, really flawed people, okay? You know, we read about, um, about um, um, ba -ba -ba -ba, Nehemiah, who, who God says, who's going to go for me? And Nehemiah says, here I am, send me. Let me back that up. That was Isaiah. <laughs> God says, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Well, Moses, who's in Hebrews 11 in the great hall of fame of faith, when God said, who am I going to send? Moses said, here am I, send somebody else. That's what we have in, in Hebrews 11. Normal, flawed Christians who still lived amazing lives of faith. And so in these four verses, the writer of Hebrews gives us essentials for us to also be able to live amazing lives of faith. And the first part, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So the first thing is, to live an amazing life of faith, there's some stuff we've got to get rid of. There's stuff we just have to get out of our lives. And the writer of Hebrews starts with saying, get rid of everything that hinders, everything that hinders our life of faith. There are simply things in our lives that are not, not necessarily and often not, they're not sins. 
They're not inherently bad, but they get in the way of our living amazing lives of faith. There's clutter in our lives that gets in the way of our confidence in God and distracts us from making a bold difference in the world. So many Christians are so distracted and so busy with so many things. We have too many acquisitions. We have too many ambitions. We have too many accomplishments, which means that we have far too much to live with and not near enough to live for. And because these things are not terrible, they're not sins, we often don't notice them and we don't name them and they stay low-key in our lives and they sap our energy and they block us from living amazing lives of faith. Older Christian spiritual writers um, sometimes label these, they call them inordinate affections. Affections for things that aren't necessarily bad, but they're out of order for what God wants us to have in our lives. There are some things that are good, but when they get out of order in our lives, they become what older writers have called inordinate affections. Their longings, desires, commitments that just, they take up too much space in our hearts that's supposed to be dedicated to living bold lives of faith. And those older spiritual writers, they talk about how we need to name our inordinate affections, and then we have to reorder them. So when you think about that, what are yours? What is in your life that is, is hindering you from living an amazing life of faith? We can't reorder our affections until we name the ones that are out of order. What are your inordinate affections? And once you name them, you're going to need to find some spiritual practices, some spiritual habits that are going to help you to reorder them. And they're not going to be, be spiritual practices that you do every once in a while. Most of us are disordered affections. They need spiritual practices to address them every day of our lives. What habits will you begin to help you value more what God wants you to value and less what hinders your Christian confidence and bold faith? Naming and confronting everything that hinders, that phrase from Hebrews 12.1, means that we're going to, we're going to have to have added spiritual awareness. We're going to have to develop some spiritual discernment and some spiritual habits. But we also have to do this in community. Very few of us can name our disordered affections all by ourselves. We need others to help us with that. So who will you invite into your life and show your life to so that they can reflect back where you may have some disordered affections? So first of all, we've got to get rid of things that hinder. Not necessarily sins. That comes next. To live an amazing life of faith, the writer of Hebrews says, we have to address our sins. And specifically, the writer of Hebrews says, we have to address the sins that so easily entangle us. So not only do we have to identify and confront our disordered affections, but we need to identify and confront our besetting sins. Every one of us has some sins that trip us up over and over and over and over and over and over again. You know what you are, yours are. I know what mine are. 
And what besetting sins do to us is they dissipate our spiritual energy. They, they cause us to be drained of the energy we need to make that difference in the world because we are living courageously and confidently and boldly for Jesus. And over the years, I figured out that sometimes the worst thing isn't my besetting sin. Sometimes the worst thing is because of my besetting sin, the things that I never get to because I'm so distracted by my besetting sins, because I choose my sins over choosing my faith. I, sometimes I just, I lay awake at night wondering what my life would have been like if I had addressed my besetting sins and what things I could have done for Jesus instead. But here's something else that I've learned, and you know, having walked with the Lord for you know, nearly six decades in my life now, or over, a little over six decades, I used to think that I had to completely eradicate my sin to be used by God and to have an amazing life of faith. But when we read Hebrews 11, that's not the case. They didn't completely eradicate their sins. I've learned that God wants me to address my sins, but God doesn't seem to need to, to have me free from my sins to let me live an amazing life of faith, which sounds weird, right? We feel like, oh, we, God can't use us till we get rid of them. But that doesn't seem to be the case. God doesn't love me because I'm some kind of paragon of performance and perfection. God doesn't love me because I'm good already. God loves me so that I will become good, which means that while we have to address our besetting sins, we're not defined by our besetting sins. And the truth is that our sins don't block God's work in us. It's not addressing our sins that blocks God's work in us. And then another thing I've learned over all these decades of walking with Jesus um, is we don't have to be surprised by our besetting sins. I remember one point in my early 30s when I figured, finally figured out how much Satan was strategizing against me to trip me up, to lead me into temptations when I was at my weakest. And I, I remember just kind of opening my eyes and realizing, wait a second, this happens constantly. <laughs> I don't have to be a victim of Satan's strategizing against me. I can counter-strategize against Satan's devices. And so that's when I, um, when I memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. Okay? So you're not going to be tempted beyond what others have been tempted. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure under it. Because God's faithful, there is always a way out of our temptations. So we don't have to be defined by our besetting sins and we don't have to be victims of our besetting sins, which means that we don't have to be perfect to live amazing lives of faith. Well, then the writer of Hebrews goes on to secondly say, to live an amazing life of faith, he says, let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And I used to think of this, this you know, race in, Roman, in um, Hebrews 12.1, I used to think of it as like this massive Christian marathon of gazillions of Christians over the centuries running the common Christian race. And that there's room for that, and the text would allow that. But more now, I see the reference to the race marked out for us as a reference to 
each of our individual races that God has marked out specifically for us. If you've been around Cornerstone for very long, we refer that to that as our holy calling. And Hebrews 12.1 says that every one of us has a race that God has specifically marked out for us. My race isn't your race. Your race isn't my race. I can't run yours. You can't run, your, run mine. We have a race that is uniquely solely marked for us, which is awesomely significant because it says that each of our lives matter. There's nobody else ever in the history of the human race who's going to have your race marked out for them other than you, which means if you don't run it, then it will not be run. To live an amazing life of faith, we need to know and run the race that God has given to us individually. Ephesians 2.10 talks about it and says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Please hear this. Each of us are a masterpiece of God. We are God's operas. We are God's workmanship. And each of us is created in Christ Jesus with a very unique purpose for our lives to fulfill. Specific good works. There are good works which God prepared in advance for you to do, and nobody else is supposed to do them. If you've been part of my Gifts and Calling workshop, you've heard me talk about how our essence precedes our existence. Before we were born, God had in mind specific good works for each and every one of us to fulfill. Jeremiah 1.5. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you, in the womb I knew you. Before you were born, God says to Jeremiah, Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. God formed each and every one of us in our mother's wombs, and he set us apart for our unique race marked out for us even before we were born. Esther refers to, in the book of Esther, we have the reference to her holy calling, the race marked out for her when she's reminded in Esther 4.14 that she was created for such a time as this. There was one thing that God needed done, and he chose Esther to be the one to fulfill that. We come across it in Nehemiah chapter 2. What Nehemiah refers to it as, he says, I had not yet told anyone what my God had put into my heart to do. Your holy calling, the race marked out for you, is something that God has put into your heart. And if you pay attention to your heart, you can discover it. Galatians 1 Verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul refers to the unique, unique race marked out for him. After speaking of his pre-conversion life, Paul says, Then something happened, for it pleased God in his kindness to choose me and call me, even before I was born. What undeserved mercy. Then he revealed his son to me so that I could proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. It took him a long time to come to bow his knee before Christ, but he knew that God had set it apart even before he was born. Philippians 3, Paul refers again to his holy calling when he writes, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Christ Jesus has taken hold of every single one of us 
for specific purposes. And Paul says, I press on, I work, I use my energy to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. So there's a retired pastor from Texas. His name is Kirby John Caldwell. And I love this quote of his. He says, there are two great days in a person's life. The day they are born and the day that they discover why they were born. Do you know why you were born? Have you spent the time to discern God's holy calling that is uniquely for you? Do you know the race marked out for you? Please take time to do this. This is one of the great adventures of being followers of Jesus, is that God loves us and has created a way to bless us incredibly as we live into our truest selves and identify and then live into his holy calling for us. But we can't just know it in our heads. So, so you know, I have probably 550 gifts and calling reports in my office from meeting one-on-one -on -one with people over the years at Cornerstone. So if you've done a gifts and calling meeting with me, a one-on-one, -on -one, I have notes. I still have notes for that. Um, I've realized that, that we sometimes get interested in this race marked out for us and this calling, and we sort of get words for it, and then it's easy to forget about it. It just drops to the background because of probably some of those disordered affections, right? The writer of Hebrews says, we can't just know the race marked out for us. We have to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So I want to encourage you, figure out your calling and then find some habits that you put into your daily life to remind you of your calling so it doesn't fade into the background. And, and the reality is that, that if you don't keep in the forefront what your unique holy calling is, you will by default live out a shadow mission that is not the mission that God wants for your life and it's not worthy of you. If we don't know the race marked out for us and don't determine to run it with perseverance, we live out shadow missions that are just a sad tragedy of what God wants us to live. So brothers and sisters, let's never ever settle for living shadow missions when we can live a life of amazing faith. So Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. In the NIV, that's, that's King James, what I memorized it when originally. In the NIV, it says this, where there is no revelation from the Lord, the people cast off restraint. Your holy calling, your race marked out for you, is God's revelation for your life. If you don't have that revelation and hold on to that revelation, Proverbs 29, 18 says, you will cast off restraint, which means this. Anything else that comes along that wants a bite of your time or your soul or your energy will get it because you're not living the revelation of the Lord for you. So anything that wants a bite of your soul will get it. It's really hard to say no to everything else in the world when you don't know what you are really here to be about. And it's easy to say no to lesser things when you have a greater yes burning inside of you. So I just want to urge you, and this is my second to last sermon with Cornerstone, okay? I want to urge you 
to do what it takes. Make the time to find, to name your holy calling and find spiritual practices to remind yourself of it every day of your life. And then finally in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews says to, to live an amazing life of faith, he says, let's focus on Jesus so we don't grow weary and lose heart. This is how he says it specifically. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Absolutely essential to live an amazing life of faith is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to keep our focus on Jesus, to see Jesus in every situation, every day of our lives. We simply can't live amazing lives of faith only noticing Jesus every once in a while. Certainly once a week on Sunday is not near enough, but neither is only just once a day. We are called to fix our eyes, to focus, to fixate on Jesus, to live an amazing life of faith. We don't focus on our failings and our flailings. We focus on Jesus to live an amazing life of faith. We don't focus on our pastors or any other spiritual leaders or authority figures. We fix our eyes on Jesus to live an amazing life of faith. We do not focus on politicians or influencers or the media or, or whatever's going on out there in the world to live an amazing life of faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus to live an amazing life of faith. We don't center our lives around our expectations and our hopes and our dreams or our sins or our fears. We focus our lives on Jesus's expectations and on his hopes and on his dreams for us. And to live a life of amazing faith, when we get discouraged or defeated, we don't focus on the circumstances. Yes, they are there. They're not going to go away. We are not denying things. But we focus, we fix our eyes on Jesus, and then we find how Jesus wants to speak to us through those situations. Because here's the deal. If our vision of Jesus is random, haphazard, sporadic, or fuzzy, our vision of all of life will be blurry and unfocused. We can revolve our life around so many other things. But the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Abiding with Jesus is better. Living a Christ-centered life is better. We can live amazing lives of faith as we determine to abide with Jesus and to fix our eyes upon him. So what spiritual habits, what spiritual practices Will you adopt to remind yourself of Jesus constantly through every day of your life? Here's just a couple of ideas. I personally, I wake up every morning, and it's a mantra, right? I say, good morning, Jesus. And I tell him that I commit to do his will throughout that day. I spend a lot of time in the Gospels. The four Gospels are our primary record of who Jesus was and what he did. And so I encourage you, read through at least one gospel every year for the rest of your life. And it'd probably be better if you'd read through all four every year for the rest of your life. 
I fix my eyes on Jesus when I gather in worship with all of you. So two weeks ago, you guys can't tell because I sit way up front, right? Two weeks ago at the end of the closing songs of the service, I was crying because I was realizing how much I see Jesus when I worship with Cornerstone Church. If your spiritual pathway to God is worship, then spend more time listening to worship songs. Um, I fix my eyes on Jesus in day-to-day -day conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's hardly ever a meeting that I have with a brother or sister in Christ that doesn't either start and or end with prayer. And our prayers always end in Jesus' name. Those interactions and conversations and prayers are a way that we fix our eyes on Jesus. I also, I take a lot of walks with God because I listen to God better when I'm moving. So if that's how, if that's your spiritual pathway, do more of that. If your spiritual pathway is doing justice, then get more involved in justice initiatives. If your spiritual pathway is creativity or appreciating beauty, then appreciate beauty more and lean into your creativity. And if your spiritual pathway is quality time and community, spend more fun times with brothers and sisters in Christ, all of you extroverts. Life is tough, right? And you've all figured out by now that adulting is really hard. Remember when we were kids, we thought all we had to do was grow up and then everything would be fine? And then we figure out that adulting is hard work. If we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, we will get overwhelmed. We will be defeated. We will grow weary and lose heart. So when that does happen, the solution is easy. Refixate on Jesus. Abide with him more closely and center our lives around us. Because what we've learned all the way through this sermon series is Jesus is better. Jesus is always better. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we are far from perfect, and we actually know that we will never be perfect. We not, will not become like you until we see you face to face. So living an amazing life of faith isn't tied to our perfection. It's not tied to our performance. It's tied to getting rid of some things that are getting in the way. It's tied to knowing our calling and running that race. And it's tied to fixing our eyes on Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this reminder that you are always better. Even though you were God. You were willing to take on flesh and become like us so that you could be with us and so that we could be with you. Lord Jesus, help each of us here to live an amazing life of faith in our generation. We pray this in your glorious name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.